welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. In 2023, the Public Religious Research Institute published their survey results about American values and attitudes ahead of the 2024 presidential election. And the survey found that 77% of Americans believe our country is heading in the wrong direction. And according to this survey, this 77% statistic holds up regardless of gender, religious affiliation, or lack thereof, race, generation, education, what region of the country the respondents live in, or whether the respondents live in a rural, urban, or suburban context. I find that to be a sobering statistic. I have this survey on my desk. It's very thick. I'm assuming it is offering accurate data. And if it is offering accurate data, one of the few things Americans seem to have in common is the belief that our country is in trouble. And I have a hunch, and I say this playfully, but I have a hunch, the minute I cited this statistic, at least some of us had this very clear and crisp reason pop into our head, and it had something to do with who is currently living in the White House. And I would suggest to you, in all grace and gentleness, if that was the first thought, we're entirely missing the point. And actually, if we allow that thought and nurture that thought, I would suggest to you we are surrendering to a temptation. If we think this national concern is primarily about who occupies the White House, then here are some other statistics from this same survey. 90% of Republicans, 81% of independents, and 59% of Democrats say the country is heading in the wrong direction. To whittle that all down, the majority of Americans feel like America is going in the wrong direction. And if our ear has been anywhere near the ground, then we know that for quite some time there has been growing uncertainty about the nation and world our children and grandchildren will inherit. Fatigue over innumerable tensions and problems here and around the world. Palpable fear, like you can see it on people's faces, hear it in their voice, fear about where history is heading. And this says nothing about our own anxieties over personal challenges that might be related to our health, marriage, job, or finances. Just imagine for a minute being 15 years old or 20 or 25 today, staring into the face of all this chaos and uncertainty. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, it is fitting and appropriate to ask the question, where is God in all of this mess? What is he up to, if anything, or has God left the building? Last week, we tried to talk about what God is up to. We talked about the Bible's big story, the meta-narrative of Scripture, what it is ultimately about. And obviously today, we cannot retrace all those steps, but the essence of the biblical story is the kingdom of God. And this week, we're wrapping up this reboot series by talking about Jesus 
and the kingdom. Jesus is the central character of the Bible and the centerpiece of the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ, that phrase, sometimes the way it gets used, I wonder if people think that Christ was Jesus' last name. But Jesus Christ means Jesus the anointed one. Jesus Christ means simply Jesus the king. When we sing, pray, or say that he is Lord and king, like we did a few moments ago, we're not making a religious statement. We are making a statement about ultimate reality according to our Bibles. We're announcing something on the level of gravity. This is the way the world is. This is the way the world works. This is how things are. This is reality. Jesus is king. And you and I are living in a time where we are tempted every single day and many moments throughout the day to forget or to otherwise minimize the relevance of Jesus and his kingdom to the chaos, anxiety, fear, and uncertainty we feel and we face. We are tempted every day to domesticate Jesus and his kingdom and restrict both to the religious theater of our lives. But for the real challenges facing our world and nation and the real challenges we are facing, the answers, so the temptation goes, are elsewhere. I mean, Jesus is great. But he doesn't offer any practical help for a fractured world, broken nation, or personal difficulty. So Jesus is great for Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, we need something more powerful and practical. So the temptation goes. And I wish this weren't the case, but this separation I'm talking about keeps atheism alive and well amongst those who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. So I want to say it loud and clear again this week. The message of the Bible is not that Jesus is the king of our religious lives. The message of the Bible is that Jesus is king, period. He's the center of ultimate reality, and there's nothing in this or any other universe greater than him. And for his followers, for those who have linked up their lives with him, our past is his, our present is his, our future is his, our hope is in him, and this is the utmost important and crucial. And this does not mean we will thrive or win or get what we want or even survive. The metrics of the kingdom of God are not the metrics of the kingdom of humans. And yet in all of that, no matter what, Jesus will still be king and one day all will be well because Jesus, the king, will make it well. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, I would encourage you to just kind of let your eyes go over this as I read it because this is one of those things that will get your attention. Paul writes in Colossians 1, verses 16 through 18, 
The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Here's what Paul is saying. Hey, everybody, this isn't the game of checkers. We're talking about reality. So today, just like last week, I hope that we will let the king ascend and be the big, transcendent, supreme king the Bible says he is. And with that, I want to read our scripture reading. So if you'd stand for that, it's very short again today. It's from Mark chapter 1. I believe it is, oh, it's page 1001. And I'm going to read verses 14 and 15, just to kind of set this up a little bit. Uh, This is Mark's version, and Mark has a kind of way of getting right to the point and cutting out the fluff. And so in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he's already been baptized. He's already spent time in the wilderness being tempted and tested. And we come to verse 14, and it says, After John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So Jesus began his ministry by announcing something, and this is what he announced. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And for a typical first century Jewish person, the coming of the kingdom of God had to do with the reestablishment of a powerful earthly throne by a powerful earthly king who would overthrow the powerful Romans. To a first century Jewish person, whether they were a religious leader or an ordinary everyday grinded out person, the, re-est- the kingdom of God meant the reestablishment of a powerful earthly throne like they had way back when by a powerful earthly king like David who would overthrow the powerful Romans who at present had them under their thumb. And they would overthrow the Romans by any means available, probably including all kinds of violence. This is what they were thinking. They were thinking of the return of Joshua. Remember, the guy who leads them into the promised land and swords are flying in every direction and Israel conquers Canaan. Or David, who himself was a military guy who knew how to trounce people. But when here in Mark chapter 1, and you can find this in Matthew chapter 4 as well, or Luke chapter 4, when Jesus announced the kingdom of God has come near He wasn't talking about a new president in Israel. He wasn't talking about overthrowing the Roman Empire. He was announcing that right now, in and through the person of Jesus, the reign of God, what we talked about last week, the kingdom, was available to anyone who wanted to experience it. And everyone was invited to step into 
life in the kingdom. This was Jesus' good news. He said it. Repent and believe the good news. This was Jesus' gospel. The door was open for any and all to experience the good reign of God over their lives. And Jesus' character, his teaching, his example, what we sometimes call his way, shows us how God reigns and shows us what life under his reign actually looks like. So I want to try to summarize all this with three words, and each of these words by themselves on their own has quite a punch. So just three words that kind of capture the implications of Jesus being king. And the first word is reconciliation. And reconciliation has to do with his cross. Reconciliation means enemies, those that are apart from each other, become friends. Last week we talked about this, but when Adam and Eve decided they wanted to be their own gods and call their own shots, the intimacy, the union, the oneness they shared with God was shattered because they usurped God. Now, we could get stuck here and we could argue. Some may argue whether there even is a God. Some may argue whether Jesus was who he claimed to be. Others might reject the whole notion of sin, the whole concept of it. But I don't know how anyone can argue with the fact of human beings behaving badly. I mean, call it whatever you want. But we are good at acting bad. We're good at doing what we want without much regard for others. We are pros at selfishness. We excel at hurting others and making messes. Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're good at falling short, missing the mark. And I don't know, this all seems rather obvious to me. And because God is holy, which means God is other, Because of that, our sin, our missing of the mark, just like with Adam and Eve, it separates us from him. It shatters the union we once had with God. The Bible says we are dead because of sin, lost in the dark. But the Bible also says God is full of love. So he took the initiative and he sent Jesus into the world who lived and taught and then died for our sins and his death made a way for us to be reconciled to God. But questions can start popping in our minds. Why did Jesus have to die? I don't get that. What did it actually accomplish? Oh, and by the way, why would God choose such a violent way to save the world? All of these are good questions. But trying to stay on point, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3 simply says, Christ died for our sins According to the scriptures, Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5 says, Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. So at the end of all the good questions and the vigorous debates, somehow and some way, King Jesus makes reconciliation with God possible through his death on the cross. And we call this conversion. But conversion may just be one of those fancy religious words that only gets used uh, in churches. So think of it this way. Conversion is turning away from the way of the human 
and turning toward the way of God's kingdom. Smart guy, theologian, popular guy these days, N.T. Wright, puts it this way. The point of trying to understand the cross better is not so that we can congratulate ourselves for having solved an intellectual crossword puzzle, but so that God's power and wisdom may work in us, through us, and out into the world that still regards Jesus' crucifixion as weakness and folly. Yes, there are puzzles. But Jesus died for our sins, not so that we could sort out abstract ideas, but so that we, having been put right, could become part of God's plan to put his whole world right. That is how the revolution works. In Revelation chapter 21 and 22, we read of a world made right by God. Meaning the old is gone. All things have been made new. We looked at this last Sunday. The old is gone. All things have been made new. And the cross is about making us right by dealing with our wrongs. The cross is where we are made new, where our sins are forgiven, and where the power of sin is defeated. At the cross, Jesus broke the curse that descended upon human beings and this earth In Genesis chapter 3, at the cross, Jesus broke that curse. So the cross was the dawning of a new day, the beginning of a restored world. Or in the words of N.T. Wright again, the cross was the moment when something happened as a result of which the world became a different place, inaugurating God's future plan. The revolution began then and there. Jesus' resurrection was the first sign that it was indeed underway. Now, this is just my observation. But sometimes Christian people stop at the cross. You'll hear this when they talk about salvation. The message, the good news, the gospel, for some Christians, stops at the cross. Forgiveness of sins. And then this really great benefit we get, sometime down the road when we die, we get to go to heaven. And for Christians, sometimes a lot of them, that's kind of the essence of it. But the kingdom of God, I would suggest to you, does not stop with the forgiveness and reconciliation of the cross. So the second potent, punchy word is renewal. And here we think of his resurrection. Again, Revelation 21, Revelation 22, out there at the end of the story, it tells us where history is heading for those who want to go there. A world made right. People from every tribe and every nation made right. All things made new, or in a phrase, Eden restored. See, when Jesus the King rose from the dead, God demonstrated his supremacy over the mighty powers of evil and death. Up until that day, death was undefeated. Every single person who had ever lived had died and stayed dead. So on that day, he demonstrated his supremacy over the powers of evil and death. Jesus' resurrection was, as N.T. Wright said, the first sign that a revolution had begun. And this revolution is about the old becoming new. It's about darkness becoming light. It's about whatever is dead 
being reborn to life. So think of that as it relates to yourself and think of that as it relates to this world. The revolution is about the old becoming new, darkness becoming light, whatever is dead being reborn to life. See, long before Jesus actually rose from the dead, he was living a resurrection life. Meaning, he acted and chose and responded and reacted in ways that were new and good and right and righteous. Everything he said and did was aligned with the way of God's kingdom. So Jesus did what Adam and Eve failed to do, or put it this way, Jesus taught us how to live in Eden right now. And he showed us what that actually looks like in the everyday particular. So part of the past two weeks have been oriented around letting the king ascend and be the big God he is. But now we're taking a turn. And we're going to take this turn, and it's going to last for the next six, seven weeks. The turn we're taking is to now let the king descend into the particulars of your life, of my life, of your story, of my story, of your current situation and mine. These words, transformation, Christ-likeness, spiritual Formation. Today we're calling it renewal. Renewal is what Jesus the King wants to do in us so he can bring renewal to the world through us. Kind of makes sense. If the end is a world made new, that it makes sense that now he would want to bring renewal to us Because we reign with him in Eden and we will reign with him when it's all said and done. And we can reign with him now if we take our life into his kingdom. So it would make sense that renewal is what Jesus wants to do in us so he can bring renewal to the world through us. I heard an invitation this week in reference to God's ongoing work in our lives. The invitation was this, reopen your story. And I have to tell you, that phrase, it just grabbed me. Reopen your story. I thought about my life when I heard that phrase. I thought about my story. I thought about this long journey I've been on with God since I was 19 years old. I thought about what God is doing in me these days. Not Mike the pastor, not Mike the this, not Mike the... Mike, the guy who's trying to follow King Jesus. I thought, what is he doing in me these days? What does he want to do to continue his renewal of me? Reopen your story. I think what it means is I don't have it all dialed in. This Christian thing is not a set it and forget it kind of deal. Reopen your story. Let the king descend into your life, your story, your circumstance. Where does he want to bring renewal in your life? You and I have a kingdom or a queendom. We reign over many aspects of our lives. We have choices to make. 
We have agency. We have power. I mentioned this last week, but we have an eight-month-old granddaughter. Her name is Elsie. Elsie has a queendom. We were up at their house on Friday night, and she had on her high chair tray ground meat, and I think there was black beans in there and something else. It was messy, but it was just all there. And she was eating it one way or another and dropping half of it and giving a little bit to the dog here and there. And then at some point, Sam walked over her dad and picked the plate off the tray and walked away with it. And about that quickly, she exercised her agency of her queendom. The face, the screech, the cry, exerted power, exerted her reign, and Sam turned around, repented of his action, and placed the plate back on her tray. So we are kings and queens. You are a king or a queen in how you run your business. We are kings and queens and how we treat our neighbors. We're kings and queens in the priorities that govern our lives. We're kings and queens in how we respond to those who annoy us, what we do with our money, our attitude toward those who are different than we are. We're kings and queens in how we react when our agenda is thwarted. We're kings and queens in how we handle anger, fear, anxiety, We're kings and queens in how we respond when we hear the name of the presidential candidate we dislike. We're kings and queens in how we react to those who vote different than we do. These things represent a mere fraction of our kingdoms and queendoms. And Jesus announces that the kingdom of God has come near in and through him. And then he invites people to follow him. And following him means this. It means we bring our queendom or we bring our kingdom under his kingdom. So the ways and the means and the principles of his kingdom shape who we are becoming and shape the say the reign we have over our lives. Your kingdom come in me and in my kingdom as it is in heaven. Your renewal happened in me. Think about that. God, your kingdom come in me and your kingdom come in my kingdom just as it is in heaven. Might I suggest these are Deliciously dangerous prayers. Wonderfully disruptive prayers. Reopen my story, King Jesus, and descend into it in a fresh and specific way. Reorient and realign me to the way of your kingdom. Renew me through your resurrection power. See, reopen your story. The phrase, the idea, it grabbed me because it's so easy to close our story. Well, this is just how it is. This is just how I am. People have to deal with it. This is as good as it's going to get. I'll bide my time. I came to the cross. Now I'm in a waiting room and someday I'll get transported to heaven. 
See, when we close our story, Christianity becomes ridiculously boring and meaningless. And that was never God's plan. When we close our story, we become followers of Jesus who are practical atheists. And that doesn't even make sense. It just happens to happen on a regular basis. See, God's plan, using his words, was that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead would be working in and through us to bring renewal in and through us. See, life in the kingdom of God is not for the comfortable. Life in the kingdom of God is not for those who prefer the same old, same old. Life in the kingdom of God begins at the cross, but the cross is only a beginning. Life in the kingdom of God is the renewal of whatever is old or dying or dead. So it is the renewal of our attitudes, the renewal of our actions, the renewal of our perspectives, the renewal of our reactions, the renewal of our responses. This is the stuff of kingdom life. Now, God is patient and he understands our sin runs deep and healing takes time. He never forces his will upon us. This is not some guilt trip that says, get your act together. Jesus constantly invites us and then it's our choice to bring our kingdom under his, to take our life into his. And when we begin to do this, this is the wonder of all wonders, we soon realize, actually, this is the way I was meant to live. This is what I've been reaching for and striving for and straining for, but I've found it right here in and through Jesus, or to say it simply, life in Eden is better than life outside of Eden. So let the king ascend. Let God be the big, wild, and untamable God he is, and When Jesus said the kingdom of God has come near in and through him, he was asking us to let the king descend into our real stories and real situations and challenges of our lives. So we come to the third potent and punchy word, and it's the word surrender. The implication of Jesus as king is an invitation to you and to me to surrender. And this has to do with his ascension to the right hand of God where he took his place as king. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays that we would know God's incomparably great power. And you can see this on the screen. Paul says that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised the king from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet. How do you feel about that? Sound a tad grandiose? Come on, sip your wine, Paul. Watch the game. Chill out, dude. Too much hype wrapped up in that? I I, I understand. It feels similar. But this is one of those high-definition passages where either the Bible is true or I am a fool, and you are too, for listening. Because I just don't see an in-between here. Paul says it clearly. Jesus ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and don't miss this, far above all rule and authority, power and 
and dominion and every name that is invoked in this world or in any world. And God placed all things under his feet. In short, Jesus is king. All things under his feet. The image, all things bowing to him. Inferior to him. No exceptions. If all things are under his feet, then no thing is more powerful than him. No thing compares to him. No thing is more powerful than him. And it just kind of gets us maybe to at least feel a bit of a wow. All this means is that even in the chaos, uncertainty, fear, worry, anxiety, tension of our world, of our nation, or maybe our lives, all these things, all this chaos, uncertainty, tension, fear, worry, anxiety, all of it is under his feet. And none of it is more powerful than him. But in the metrics of the kingdom, this means we might not thrive. We might not win. We might not succeed. We might not survive. Because thrive, win, succeed, and survive are metrics of the kingdom of humans. Not necessarily metrics of the kingdom of God. So the invitation to you and to me is to open our hands and surrender. Open our hands and trust. Let the king ascend. He's big. And then let him descend into the particulars. And we surrender to his will and to his way. So I want to ask you to close your eyes as we wrap this up. And now would be a time to sink into your particulars. May not be anything that's been mentioned, but most of us have a particular or two that sits right in front of us, maybe from the past, maybe in the present, maybe in the future. 77% of us think the country is on a train bound for nowhere. All things are under his feet. Who's going to be our next president? All things are under his feet. What if we lose the country? All things are under his feet. Name your worry. Name your fear. Name your concern. Name the health challenge. Name the loss. Name the sadness. Name the ache. All things are under his feet. How about this? Reopen your story and turn to the most painful page. All things are under his feet. 
Jesus is king. Exhale. We might not win. We might not thrive. We might not succeed. We might not survive. But Jesus is king.